Okay, today is April the 13th, 2010. One week from tonight, Mr. Vidal Sassoon. I mean, Vidal Flores. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just perky. It just comes out. Uh, <laughs> Vidal is going to be teaching us next Tuesday night. And then at a, at a later date, uh, Michael Keeling is going to be teaching us. So we're all be, we will all be looking forward. That is, uh, is that still the schedule? Oh, is it Thursday? Okay, Thursday. A week and, uh, what, two days from now? Thursday? Is that right? Okay, that will be the 22nd. Okay, 22nd. So... <coughs> Let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for providing this place, the time, the Holy Spirit, your word the great system of perception. We have no excuse for not growing in grace and knowledge. We thank you for these things. Pray that you will help us to exploit them to the max. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There's a little blurb that I had. It's little this little gray area right here in the Berean call for this month. And I thought I would uh, read it to you. It has to do with Fellowship. You know, churches, just like marriages and families and everything else, need balance. And it seems like there's a lot of churches that are on one end of the extreme or the other, especially when it comes to fellowship. I will grant you that most churches are way, let's see, it'd be to my list, <laughs> way over here, and they have nothing but fellowship. There's no teaching of the Word. They're glorified country clubs. People go there because that's where they have friends. And they have a sometimes a 20-minute sermonette, just a little thing that uh, they can still call it church, but for the most part it's glorified country clubs. That is very prevalent. On the other side, there are churches that think no fellowship whatsoever, as if it's a bad word. And I think that the balance is somewhere in between, and that's what made me think to read this little uh, excerpt here from the Brian Call on page 7. And I like the, uh, the uh, title, Circle the Wagons. This is by T.A. McMahon, the executive director of the Brian Call. One of the very obvious character characteristics of the first century church was the fellowship of believers. They were drawn to each other primarily because of their new life in Christ. They continued together, growing steadfast in doctrine. There's the key. See, they were growing steadfast together in doctrine was the main thing. In the Lord's Supper and in praying together. Furthermore, they met one another's physical needs. That was a witness of their changed life and the strengthening of their faith for witnessing. 
Their obedience to the word in fellowship produced much fruit, giving them favor with those who saw their changed lives. And the Lord added new believers to the church daily. And some of the, the scriptures that this was based on is Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Then he says, If we are not experiencing fellowship with other believers, besides being disobedient to the Word, we are missing out on what God has provided for our growth, encouragement, edification, consolation, and spiritual welfare and protection. All of this is especially critical as apostasy increases and the world steps up its attack against Christ and His followers. So what he's essentially saying is that we can expect more of the same of what we've had in the past, only it's going to be escalated. It's going to be multiplied, not added. There's going to be, I think, according to the Scriptures, uh, not only this country, but the whole world is going to be shaken to its core. And we know that there is a time coming that is unlike any time that has ever has been or ever will be, talking about the tribulation, the great tribulation. And uh, I don't believe that we're going to be going through the tribulation at all. We will be removed before it begins. But that doesn't mean that there is that we're going to be free from great calamity before it even occurs. I'm just wondering whether this nation is going to survive long enough for the uh, rapture to occur or whether uh, we'll go out as a nation before uh, the rapture is here. And uh, that might be shocking to some people, but there is no nation, there never has been a nation and never will be a nation that can openly, defiantly oppose God and think that they are safe from His wrath and His discipline. So those of you who are in tune with what's occurring, you can see that for yourself. And what this article was saying is that we need to band together like-minded believers with doctrine to support and encourage one another and help each other, not only in the, in the spiritual realm, but also physically. We all have needs and things that we uh, can do to help one another, and I encourage that. That's one reason that we have the, um, after the Lord's Supper, we have the meal here on the grounds at Country Bible Church. It just, when, when I walk around and I see believers interacting with one another and talking to one another and laughing and carrying on and just, just fellowshipping, it just, it just lifts my spirits. This is what a church needs to be. It's, uh, it's a family. A family that doesn't know each other, that doesn't care about each other, is a weak family, we don't need to be weak. It's not that we are crutches for one another. We all depend upon the Word. But one of the things that God uses in order to encourage us and support us is fellow believers. So, we're going to start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And we might go fairly quickly through these first two verses because I believe we've already been here at least... Uh, this is the thing. When we don't know whether we've been here or not, you know what that means? I'm talking about in these verses. We probably need to go over them again. 
But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The we is referring to the traveling missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. New converts must be treated with care. They take a lot of toleration and understanding. Much harm can be done if they are treated harshly or do not receive attention or forgiveness. They receive... They, they need a lot of attention. They need a lot of care. One of the, I think so many believers are guilty of witnessing to someone and think, well, my job is over, and they press on, and they never reach out back to this person and see what their needs might be. Uh, maybe you can give them the website. Maybe you can give them uh, booklets, uh, CDs, tapes, whatever it may be. Give it to them and ask them what they thought about it. Stay in contact with them. This can make a, a big difference because there are sharks circling the water constantly. The Bible talks about Satan uh, goes around prowling like a roaring lion. It's not always him personally that's doing it. He's not omnipresent. He can only be at one time, I mean, one place at one time. I don't know if he's ever been to Brenham, Texas. There's been times that I was suspicion that, but he doesn't have to be there personally. He has his delegated authority to his minions, his demon officers and so forth that can take care of that. They're always on the prowl, so we have to be mindful of that. When we witness to someone, or when you have the opportunity to talk to someone, maybe in your family, maybe at work, maybe it's just an associate or uh, someone that you have just come in contact with, you need to stick with them. If you've given them some information, it could be on a, a, a vast array of things. Maybe it's maybe you've given them some information about rearing children, or maybe something that has to do with uh, their marriage, or it may be something financial. Whatever it may be, whatever principles that you give them from the Word, don't you think it'd be a good idea to follow up and ask them how's it going? Uh, it's very possible that they said something or did something that just didn't work at first and they've given up and they need someone to come in and say well all of us fail that's how we learn but it doesn't change the principles that are uh, immutable in God's word and you just encourage them and you talk to them that's what that's about then we have verse uh, 8 having thus a fond affection for you we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And I I spent some time uh, last Thursday talking about how somewhat of the the relationship between a pastor and his congregation and how that uh, can develop and the various issues that go uh, together there. But I like the part where he says, We also gave, gave, gave you our own lives, everything they were. They were at the disposal of their flock. If their flock needed help, if they needed attention, if there was something they were struggling with, they couldn't, they couldn't get past it, they could talk to their pastor, obviously, because it says they were open. Their inner thoughts were shared with their congregation. Of course, that's not what the main relationship between a pastor and a congregation is, and that is the pastor is the teacher. He imparts doctrine, and it's the congregation that learns from him exercising his spiritual gift of teaching. 
But that's not all there is. That's essentially what this verse is talking about. There is a relationship there. And then we go to verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Uh, I think we might have read Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, but I don't, I don't think we went uh, past that. So let's look at that. The reason I'm giving Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9 is because it is a similar verse. It's a sister verse to what we just had. Of course, this was given in another epistle, a later epistle. But this is what it says. Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9. Are you yourselves know... How many times have you, have you all seen that pattern? How many times? You know this. You already know it. He's, he's just reminding them of something, refreshing their memory. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. There's a lot in that verse. It's not the verse we're dealing with, but it does give you a little bit more information as to what it means when, in verse 9 when it says that they... <coughs> excuse me. We're working... Night and day, as to not be a burden. Uh, they're talking about a financial burden on their flock. We're going to see a lot more about this as we continue here. Paul, Silas, and Timothy worked physically to support themselves, even though they had the right to be supported by their congregation. They did this so that no one could allege they were preaching for money. There were many accusations being leveled against them, and no doubt money would be would have uh, been one more allegation if they weren't self-supporting. So they took that that lie, that false allegation, off the table by not receiving any money from their congregation, even though they had the right to do so. And then uh, I guess this is uh, four eight, less than twenty two. Actually, this is. Where we, I know we haven't gone through these scriptures yet, so this is new ground we're plowing here. Pastor teachers do have the right to be supported by their congregations. In case anybody is uh, not sure about that, we're going to go through these uh, scriptures, not all of them, but some of them. Let's start with Deuteronomy 25, 4. Deuteronomy 25.4 You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, that's pretty well self-explanatory, isn't it? I mean, you can get an idea of what that is if you know what this is talking about. They used to have a big, big grinding wheel and they would have a... a, a a pole coming out from it, and it would it would attach to an ox or some kind of beast of burden. 
And they would walk around in this circle and this big stone would crush their grain or corn or whatever it is they were having. And he would just, for hours and hours and hours, day after day, he would just walk in a circle and grind the corn. But you know what they always had to do? They couldn't muzzle the ox. He was, he was able to eat the grain that was on the, you know, on the ground or else they would have a, a feed bag that would be on him so that he, he'd have to have the nourishment to keep going. That was his motivation to keep going. He was working. And so the idea is anybody that's working is due the remuneration or the uh, financial support that they need in order to keep going. That's the idea in Deuteronomy 25.4. Now we'll go to Matthew 10.10. 10. Matthew 10.10. 10. And all we're going to do is, I'm not going to go through the whole um, idea here, the whole parable. I'm looking at the last part of verse 10. Verse 10 says, or let's say verse 9, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And so when the, the disciples went out, they were not to carry all these things with them because the idea here is they were ministering to the people they came in contact with and they didn't need to carry all these things with them because uh, you don't muzzle the ox that is threshing. Same idea here. They Essentially, the people were going to provide for them when they were out and about. Then we'll go to Luke chapter 10. Verse 7 and 9, or 7 through 9. <clears throat> Talking about staying in someone else's house as they were out and about. Verse 7 and stay in that man, man, in that house, eating and drinking. What they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Underline that. That's the whole theme going through there. The laborer is worthy of his wages. He deserves wages. (coughs) Do not keep moving from house to house. In other words... When they stayed at someone's house, they were ministering to them. They were uh, teaching them the Word. It says you shouldn't have to go house to house. When you're at someone's house, they should be able to support you. Then verse 8, Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near, uh, has come near to you. So he is ministering to them and he's saying essentially that's another uh, place where it's talking about they are to be supported by those who they are ministering to. Now we go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6.
Galatians 6, 6. Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with him who teaches. Now, the good things here is referring to monetary things. It doesn't mean that when someone with the communicating gift of the Word comes in that, in that time, they, they, they didn't have, uh, they, they were just, they would be passing through and they would be staying with someone and he would be sharing the Word and it says sharing the good things doesn't mean, well, you share your old, good old stories with him. That's, what not, that's not what's in view. It's talking about support even, a good, uh, even here. But the one who has taught the Word, the one who has taught the Word, share all good things with him who teaches. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 9. Got one out of order there, didn't I? Chronologically or canonically. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine verse six. Or do only Barabbas and I not have the right to refrain from working? What, I, what did I say? Barabbas, Barnabas. I'm sorry. I was looking up ahead. Um, let's, let's move back a little bit. A few scriptures here. Let's just start with verse one. That that will read us better into the picture. This is Paul talking about the things that he's free to do. And he's going to talk about things that he has a right to expect. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? You see, that's one of the places where we see that if you're going to be an apostle, one of the requirements was to see the risen Lord, the risen Christ. Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? And the answer would be yes. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Look at that. Not just a wife, a believing wife. This whole idea in Catholicism <coughs> excuse me, about celibacy is not scriptural. Old Testament priests had wives. Here you have an apostle saying he had the, the right to have a wife. The, the, this is something that was concocted through the, by the Catholic Church. And I would highly suspect it had to do with keeping the money in the church and not passing down through the, through the, um, the sons and daughters and the families if they had wives. Yes, Cindy. Yeah. And and you see what, what happens? Thank you, Pete. You see what happens when you get off the Word? What do we have today in the Catholic Church? Huge problem with priests who are supposedly celibate, something that God has never required of His priests, nor of His apostles, nor of His pastors. And now you have hundreds, if not thousands, of cases where priests have abused uh, boys, girls, everything else sexually. And I think part of that 
is because uh, they are they are adhering to something that is unbiblical. They don't have wives, and that's simply not biblical. But that's not my point. I just thought I'd pass that along as we went by here. So they have the right to have a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles, the rest of the apostles did, and brothers of the Lord and Cephas. You know who Cephas is, don't you? Peter, yeah. Or do not only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? You see, he's... See the power of questions? They stay engaged. They know where he's going with this. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgments, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses... And we just saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Here we have Paul quoting it to the Corinthians. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? In other words, if he's concerned about an ox, isn't he going to be a lot more concerned about his believers who have the spiritual gifts of communicating his word? Or is he speaking all together for our sake? In other words, he's saying, this isn't about the ox, even though it was the, the right thing to do as part of the Mosaic Law. It's the principle that he's applying to himself as well as other apostles. Or is he speaking all together for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the threshing to thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. See, again, he's saying here, don't take it just because we were not taking support from the Corinthians for the same reason he wasn't from the Thessalonians because people were pointing at them and saying, uh-huh, they're in it for the money. See, that doesn't resonate so much today, but in the time that this was written, there were a lot of philosophers, uh, there were a lot of debaters, there were a lot of these, uh, uh, what we would call uh, part of the academia, and they would, they would just um, ramble in and out around different communities uh, they were just sojourners. And when they came to a particular place, uh, they would use the people in order to get paid. They were in it for the pay. And they expected people to pay them. And they were accusing Paul and Silas and Timothy of doing the same thing. These are just sojourners. These are just vagabonds. And they go from one place to another. And they tell you these stories and all. But they're really exploiting you because they are, what they really want is support. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, no person with the communication gift of imparting God's Word should ever be in it for the money. And that's what they were accusing him of doing. But he's also saying we have the right to do it, but we chose not to for your benefit so that those who were falsely accusing us of doing it for the money will be shown to be what they are, which are liars. 
That's what's going on here. Then verse 12. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly up to the altar have their share with the altar. Do you know what he's talking about there? In the Old Testament, when they made, you know, they had hundreds of thousands of sacrifices of all different types of animals. Everything from turtle doves to sheep to oxen, whatever it was. What do you think they did with that food, that meat? It fed the priests. They, they worked. Listen, if you've ever, uh, those priests in the Old Testament worked hard. I mean, when you take these animals and, and you have to uh, cut their throat and then they had to take care of their entrails, entrails and, and they'd have to skin them and they'd have to uh, take care of the meat. They didn't have freezers to put it in. Can you imagine on some of these, uh, I could take you back into the Old Testament into when Solomon um, dedicated the temple. There were literally thousands of sheep Thousands of oxen, thousands of all types of animals that were sacrificed. Can you imagine the logistics that that must have been? Just to, they had to have them closed in some kind of enclosure and to take them out, cart them over to where the altar was, and then tie them down. It had to be very organized. Each person had to know what their job was and do it. And then once you killed it and you went through the right procedure and, and sprinkle the blood and all these type of things. What do you look at all the blood and all the uh, what did they do with all the entrails and all the uh, you know once they had the meat they had to be skinned it had to be cut up and cured or whatever this was a huge undertaking it was a lot of work and what he's saying is the people that were doing all this aren't they entitled to some of the meat of the fruit of what they're doing it's another example so verse 14, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's about as plain as you can get it. Then we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Let's, I have verse 9 here, but let's start with verse 8. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. Or 7, I'm sorry. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now, the reason he's saying, did I do it without charge, is because he's, going to, he's about to tell us, Someone else was supporting him while he was doing this. Verse 8 says, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to serve you. Now, about this time, the Corinthian church should be feeling very low because he is essentially calling them out. He is chewing them out here. He felt it necessary not to take wages from them not to be supported by them because uh, others would have made accusations against him and they weren't strong enough to overcome them. But other churches were supporting him while he was ministering to believers in, a, in another church, different church. 
He says in verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I keep myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Isn't that interesting? Where did these funds come from? Macedonia. What church is in Macedonia? Thessalonia. Yeah. And they were not a rich church. I can take you to Scripture to show you that they were poor. And yet there came a time when they were supporting. See, he went to Thessalonica first, and he ministered to them. And then later on he went down to Corinth, and evidently they got the point, and they were able to raise funds. This time, not even to support Paul when he was there, but to support Paul when he was down in Corinth. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. Verse 14 says, Never, Nevertheless, you... You've done well to share with me in my affliction. It refers to sending monetary gifts, as we'll see. Philippians chapter 4, that was verse 14. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. So you know what this is saying? Guess who was supporting him when he was in Macedonia, in Thessalonica? The Philippians were. They shared with him in his need. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So when we're looking over here in First Thessalonians, and he's talking about he worked night and day so they wouldn't become a burden to him. He was still being supported by the Philippian church. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Then he says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for you the profit which increased to your account. Think about that a minute. How do you normally increase your account? You go to the bank, how do you increase your, your account? By putting, taking money uh, and putting it into your account, right? This is just the opposite. How do you increase your account in the spiritual realm? The money's going the other direction. Do you see it here? Look at verse 17 again. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for you the profit which increases to your account. When they reach deep into their pocketbooks in order to support the the, uh, Paul and his band when they were in Thessalonica, they didn't go more in debt. It was profit. It increased their spiritual account. You suppose these folks might have had a personal sense of destiny? That they recognized that even though they had hardship, they were going to still support these missionaries in Thessalonica, even though it was very difficult for them, because they realized it was increasing their spiritual account. How long does your spiritual account last? 
forever, right? That's what a personal sense of destiny is all about. How long does your temporal, your existing bank accounts last? (laughs) Get the point? Isn't that beautiful? We're going to step, skip 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 because I'm going to cover it in a bit. i got to keep pressing on here. Um, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3, 8 and 9. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. We just we just went over that one, didn't we? There's no use in us doing that again. We just went over it up here, seven through nine. We'll get to First Timothy chapter five, verse seventeen, eighteen in a minute. But let's let's press on here. This is uh, on page twenty-two. The next phrase is for you recall, brethren, our labor. The word here, Greek word for labor, is kapos, K-O-P-O-S. It's a noun accused of singular masculine. That means wearisome effort, wearisome effort, toil, or vexation. Used not so much to denote the actual exertion a man makes, but the weariness he experiences from that exertion. It's not necessarily uh, manual physical labor, but there is. It does take a toll uh, when you are uh, facing uh, responsibilities. You're, you're working, whether it's with your mind, uh, in, in in relationships, and so forth. It is still something that takes a toll, and that's what this word kapos means. Then the next word we have here is in hardships. The word Greek word for hardship is mokthos, M-O-C-H-T-H-O-S. It's also a noun accused of singular masculine. It means hard labor, toil, physical exhaustion. It is used also in 2 Corinthians 11.27 and 2 Thessalonians 3.8, only other two times it's used. And it's always accompanied with labor, kapos. In other words, every time you see hardship, which is mokphos in the Greek, you also have kapos. So it's, every time this word is used, it's used in conjunction with kapos. Those two go together. One is a more of an, a manual, a physical exertion. The other one is more just a mental uh, type of exertion when you when you have the pressures and responsibilities and that type of thing. It refers to hard manual labor. We know Paul used his skill at times making tents according to Acts 17.2. It was not easy for Paul to work making tents and then find the time to properly feed his flock. Remember I went over that some last time? I had the experience in this church when we first started. I think, I don't know if any of you were here then. That might even been before you were here, Danny. I'm not sure that I had to uh, work. I was driving a school bus at one time. I worked at a log home company for a short time. And I can tell you, when you have those other responsibilities and it, it demands your concentration, your time, and your mental faculties, it takes away from uh, what you could be doing in preparing uh, and handling all the ministry of, of your flock. 
So <clears throat> to that degree, I knew what Paul was talking about. It is not easy to do. Because the ministry is, is not <clears throat> 8 to 5. Uh, some people think pastors have it easy because all they got to do is uh, get up and talk in front of a few people on a Sunday morning, and then they're, for the whole rest of the week, they're, they really don't have anything to do. Now, there may be some pastors like that. I don't know of any of them. It's certainly not me. I'm always fighting for time, constantly. Uh, it's it, it, just like today. <laughs> it makes it worse when what something when something happens like happened today. I spent about three hours uh, studying, had it all detailed, specific things that I had gone through all over the place, and all of a sudden this thing pops up on my computer and says, "You got to close down." It said something. I said, "What? I've never seen this before," and I couldn't. There wasn't anything I could do. It, to make a long story short, I lost everything that I had done there. It's about a it about a page and a half of material there. And then I had to go outside and start rebounding. <laughs> I was mad. You ever got mad at a computer? And I thought, why? And then it finally dawned on me, okay, Lord, this is a test. Yeah, it's about time that I cool down and start passing it. And one thing that I found, if that ever happens to you, the best thing to do is go right back in there while it's fresh on your mind and go right back into it because... You're going to remember things better right then, if you're not mad, than you will at any other time. So go outside, cool off, rebound, come back in, and then you can kind of get back on it. So uh, we know that Paul was a tent, a tent maker, according to Acts 17:2, and he did use that skill in order to provide for himself. Then we have how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. Paul was very careful to show that those who were saying that he was just there to exploit his flock financially were making false accusations. They were lying. People guilty of doing this are out of line and do not have the right motivation. That would be either the people who are accusing them or that pastors that are in it for the money. Both of those categories are out of line and have the wrong motivation. Now we go to these two verses here. First one is uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Now, I love the King James Version, and I've heard pastors teach this, and when they get to uh, sordid gain, that word in the, in the King James Version is, Filthy lucre. And I remember that word because I used to hear those pastors get up. And you don't go out there and try to get that filthy lucre. Man, I love that word. That stuck with me. Lucre. Who knows what lucre is? You know. <laughs> I just That just stuck with me. I think that's... And it's, it's all over in the King James Version. I think it's used about seven times. Filthy lucre. And then we have Titus. Well, I, I should go back. to uh, This is such a wonderful verse. You notice shepherd is with a capital S. That is the, uh, the ultimate shepherd. Um, well, I, let me put it this way. This probably, I don't know if this is starting a sentence or what. But here's the principle. 
the ultimate shepherd tells the under shepherds what to do. And the shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, is telling his under shepherds, which I am one of them, to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. You need to watch over what's going on and make sure it's go, uh, uh, sometimes you say going according to Hoyle. Y'all ever heard that expression? Okay, I don't have to explain it. Um, not under compulsion. That's the main thing. I can see somebody shaking their Hoyle is the, I think it's in it, the rules for canasta or is it for poker? Okay, it's, it's rules for card games and different games. And I guess the guy's name is Hoyle. If you're ever playing a, a, a cards, canasta, or poker, or whatever it is, I'm not sure what the games are, they, they would say, that's not a carding to Hoyle. And so now it, it, it came into uh, our language when somebody isn't doing something right, they would just say, it didn't have to be about cards or anything else. You'd say, it's not a carding to Hoyle. Uh, I probably shouldn't have used that expression. <laughs> anyway, they weren't doing it right. You know, they, they're, they're to oversee it, and uh, this is episkopos. Episkopos means an overseer. And that's the uh, episkopos is the noun. And then there's a verbal for it, which would be the uh, the verb for oversight, which would be a episkopotes or something like that. It would be the verb form. Uh, not under compulsion. That's the main thing. I'm not up here, nor should any pastor be there, because they are com. They, they're doing it from compulsion, that they feel like, well, I have to do it. If you read on, you'll see, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. God wants shepherds that are in it because they can't not do it. And voluntarily. There's not many pastors that will say this, but I'll tell you this, I would do it whether I was paid or not. I have to do it. I cannot not teach. It is in me. And that's the way it should be with every pastor teacher. That spiritual gift is such a driving force. It's, it's like if you're not teaching, you're, you're just... I don't know, I've been teaching for, what, 19 years now. And I can't, I can't think of not teaching ever since it, do, I, I, it dawned on me that the, the Lord gave me the spiritual gift of pastor teacher. It can't be from compulsion. It'd be like going to a job that you didn't like, that you didn't want to do. How, how can you be effective and really do a good job if you hate your job? So it's not from compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, but not for sordid gain. And I'm going to give in the next verse what sordid gaining, what filthy lucre is. In Titus 1.7. Here we go. For the overseer, again, from Episcopos, <clears throat> Must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of filthy lucre, sordid gain. Now, here's the word uh, for the, the Greek word for filthy lucre is ice crocardes. A-I-S-C-H-R-O-K-E-R-D-E-S. It's an adjective. It's a compound word. From ice cross, which a i s c h r o s, which means indecent or dishonorable, plus uh, kerdos k e r d o s, which means gain. So it's in, indecent or dishonorable gain. This is a person who is eager to gain, even if such gain 
degrades his moral character. He's not doing it in an honorable way. Pastors are not to minister to their flocks for financial gain. Should they be supported financially? Absolutely. I've shown you that. But that's not why they should be in it. Some believe that any amount a pastor receives above the poverty level is to be considered filthy lucre. There are those who are out there and they think, well, pastors should be uh, eat humble pie and they should go around and grovel and just, uh, you know, that if they expect or, or receive anything above the poverty level, then they call that filthy lucre. And this is not true. A pastor is to be supported by his flock as best as they can. Here's the Scripture. This is the one I said we were going to get to. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Let the elders, this time the Greek word is presbuteroi, plural. You may have heard of presbuteros, that's a singular. That's another title for a pastor. Let the presbuteroi, the pastor teachers who rule well, be considered worthy. And look at this, worthy is a verb and it's the present passive imperative. This is saying that it's imperative upon the church to consider them worthy of double honor. Double honor here is uh, duplois time, D-I-P-L-O-U-S and T-I-M-E. That's double honor. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, and you've heard this before, Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So, the context of these verses definitely focus on the financial issues. The plus time, double honor, does not mean double honor exactly. The Greek word time, T-I-M-E, that's an eta, that's why it sounds like an A, means honor, and in the verb form can mean to reward. It is where we get the English word honorarium. You ever heard that word before? An honorarium is which is payment in recognition of acts or professional services for which the custom our propriety forbids a price to be set. When someone comes and speaks out of church or out of wherever it may be, many times they get what is called an honorarium. There's not a set fee. They don't say, I'll come to your church for $600. Nothing is said about that, but an honorarium is remunerating them for the effort and time that they put in ministering to the people. And it's from that same word, Timae, in the Greek, honorarium. So, we're talking about this double honor here. It refers to giving the pastor-teacher remuneration and respect. Verse 18 clarifies this. Verse 18 meaning was about the ox. Don't, don't, uh, most of the ox. Verse 18 clarifies this. The first obligation of the church is to pay the pastor well. And then he can be released to study and teach and study and teach. And also, being a pastor is an honorable occupation worthy of respect, if fulfilled correctly. Some believe that double honor means that a pastor who does his his job well should receive at least double the average income of his congregation if they are financially capable of doing so. Let's go back here for just a moment. You see up here where it says, let 
the pest brood are out the pastures who rule well, be considered worthy. Now, you have the present passive imperative. It's not an imperative that says you will pay them double honor a certain amount because not all churches are able to do that. But what they are in, in, uh, commanded to do in the imperative voice is to consider them worthy of it. Maybe they can't pay them that because there's not, especially small churches with 20 or 30 people, uh, they can't support the pastor the way a, a larger church can, but they still should, they're commanded to recognize that they are worthy of that. And that's why what we get down here, that there should be uh, the double honor, in other words, is talking about monetary issues and double honor just doesn't mean that he's to be honored uh, twice as much as someone else. It's talking about remuneration. The whole idea and the context of this is talking about supporting a pastor as best as a congregation can and not just the get by which some people in other places think. Uh, I probably will close on this. It says, this is a, um, a quote from uh, Warren Wiersbe, the Bible Exposition Commentary. Let me make that a little smaller. It needs to be down about uh, ten font. Okay, here's the quote. It is God's plan that the needs of His servants be met by their local churches. And He will bless churches that are faithful to His servants. If a church is not faithful and its pastor's needs are not met, it is a poor testimony and God has ways of dealing with the situation. He can provide through other means, but then the church misses the blessing or he may move his servant elsewhere. So this is saying that if a, if a church is capable of obeying what this is saying up here about the double honor, uh, being considered of uh, the elders being considered of uh, double honor and so forth. He's saying if a church is capable of doing that and they're not, the Lord is going to find ways of supporting that pastor. But it's going to be the church that suffers in some form or fashion. And it, just like uh, in Thessalonica, they they weren't being supported. Paul voluntarily did not receive support because of the issues of being accused of being in it just for the money and so forth. But there was another church, Philippi. The church of Philippi sent him uh, gifts, monetary gifts, in order to support him. So I don't know the exact situation there. Evidently, Paul thought it was proper not to uh, have his right of not working and being supported because of the issues at hand. But if that was a church that was capable of doing that and they were not, and you have another church that was supporting him, that church is going to be the one that suffers. Now, it appears that later on the churches from Macedonia were uh, supporting the churches. Uh, where were we in that? Was that in Galatians? Uh, and if that was the case, it would look like the Thessalonians finally got to the point to where they were capable and were supporting Paul even, if, even when he wasn't there. So if this ever comes up uh, about the support of a pastor, these are some of the verses that deal with this because that's what our verse... I just didn't bring this out of the thin air in order to get a raise. <laughs> I deal with what is ever on the uh, 
in the Scriptures, and this is what we have. For you will call, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden for you, we proclaim the gospel of God. We'll pick that up there next time and uh, press on. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to fellowship in your word. We recognize when it comes to provision, you are the great Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. You have blessed us so many ways. You have blessed us monetarily, but even more important than that, you've blessed us spiritually, whereby we now, so, so many believers here at Country Bible Church, can rightly divide the word of truth. They use the word for discernment in so many areas, and we thank you for that. But we're always vulnerable. We always have to be careful not to be distracted, not to rely on our resources from ourselves, but to always trust in your grace that is always sufficient. We thank you for this. Pray that you will help us to continue to keep on keeping on. For we pray it in Christ's name.